1: Welcome to Deconstructed, I'm Ryan Grimm. Now the decade from 2010 to 2020 saw more people surge into the streets to engage in mass protest than any decade in human history. And I suspect that stat remains true even if you adjust it for the growing size of the population. There were so many, it's hard to remember them all, from the Arab Spring in 2011, to mass protests in Brazil and Chile, to the Maidan in Ukraine, Occupy Wall Street, the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong, the Candlelight Movement in Korea, Gezi Park in Turkey, the George Floyd protests in the United States, and if we wanna keep going, the recent mass protests in Israel against the takeover of the judiciary. But if we look back on them with a clear eye, something terrifying starts to come into focus. In many of those cases, at best, things remained basically the same afterwards. In others, the result was the precise opposite of what protesters originally wanted. Vincent Bevins, a veteran foreign correspondent, has written a new book called If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. I thought his last book, The Jakarta Method, published in 2020, was a true masterpiece, and so there was no chance I was going to miss whatever he wrote next. And In my opinion, If We Burn is just as good, if not even better, but it's a much different book. And in many ways, it's a difficult one because it asks uncomfortable questions about the movements that have been the real heroes of our era. And it asks those questions sympathetically to those who were most involved in all of those mass protest movements. The book is also uncomfortable in the way it forces us to look closely at the Maidan uprising in Ukraine and the ability of the far right to co-opt it, the details of which take on a new tragic hue amidst this ongoing war. But if we don't have these uncomfortable conversations, we'll all be stuck in the same doom loop of outrage, protest, and reaction. So I'm excited to be joined today by the author of the new book, If We Burn, Vincent Bevins. Vincent, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me. And so let's start with the Free Fair movement in Brazil. And first, the question of how you actually wound up down there in the first place. You say you kind of accidentally became a journalist, which is the same way it happened to me so i was i was intrigued to to read that line so uh, how did you stumble your way into this terrible profession
2: yeah i didn't study journalism i thought that i was going to do something in academia i was in venezuela in 2007 thinking i was going to go back to grad school and i sort of fell into local English language journalism in Caracas because it was the only way that I could find to pay for food and rent while I was living out there. And I just kind of stuck in it. Um, I ended up going back to London or going moving to London after Venezuela in 2008 and then got a internship at the Financial Times, which was the, the paper in, uh, that sent me to Sao Paulo in, in 2010. And when I went out to Sao Paulo uh, in 2010, The story was a very different one than the one that I ended up covering. It was about the rise of a new economic powerhouse in South America. It was about shifts in global relations. It was about Lula's government sort of unquestionably having achieved popularity and economic growth. And and then as I got there, things start to fall apart really in 2013 with this, uh, the eruption of this mass protest that becomes the, the main narrative of the book. And you start the
1: book drawing a line back to Students for a Democratic Society through kind of seattle and the anti-globalization movement or what they like to call the alter globalization movement and then through to the the way that that ethos that kind of anarchist fueled horizontal ethos fueled the rest of these protests throughout the 2010s can you set that up a little bit for people
2: yeah absolutely especially as it relates to the free fair movement yeah, which was a group in Brazil formed in 2005 dedicated ultimately to the full decommodification de- of public transportation. So their goal in the long term was to ask the government to make all transportation free. But they were a group of leftists and anarchists that arose out of the anti-globalization or alter globalization movement. A lot of them had worked for indie Media Brazil. They had really, uh, their ideological and organizational antecedents were in the Global explosions around the Seattle protest in 1999. And this group, not only the Free Fair Movement, but a lot of the associated uh, organizations linked through me- Indie Media or uh, Sympathy for the Zapatistas back in the late 90s and early 2000s, had a particular organizational and philosophical ethos and an approach to political change and to responses to perceived political injustice. That was very, very different than what we would have seen in the first half of the 20th century. It was one that was based on a, a rejection of the legacy of the Soviet Union, which started really in the, um, as you as you mentioned, uh, with students for democratic society in the United States, especially in the 1960s. These were a set of philosophical uh, and moral approaches to political change, which really became hegemonic I think by the 2010s and, and they came to uh, appear to be the natural if not the only way to respond to injustice um, and this was a, the natural response uh, was the mass protest getting as many people as you could uh, into the streets in a way which was horizontally organized digitally coordinated uh, apparently leaderless and you know these are all things that we took for granted as, as not if if not morally privilege than at least the way these things were going to go in the 2010s but I think you can only really get to that point by looking at the long organizational and intellectual history of movements like the free fair movement and the the transformation of ideas especially in the English speaking North America from let's say 1965 to 1999 and then
1: into the 2010s I saw my young self in in a lot of these cuz I you know my I, my politics were forged in the 1990s mm-hmm. because that's when I was in Basically, in college, young young man at the time, and there was this very robust kind of rejection of communism after the fall of the Soviet Union and the the rise of, in some corners, you know, explicit anarchism, but elsewhere, like you write, just horizontalism and the you know hostility to to hierarchy. And I was at those Washington. You talk about a something in 2020 down in Brazil. I was at a 16 and. In Washington, DC, which was the follow-up to the the Seattle protests, and there, like you said, no leaders, kind of nobody speaks for anybody, a giant umbrella coalition, everybody's equal, and they're just gonna mass in the streets and take on, take on power and express their outrage. In the U.S., that kind of got shut down by by 9-11 and it transformed into an anti-war movement, which was also unsuccessful, obviously, because the war happened. But you then see that. And I hesitate to call it an ideology because it's it's a tactic, mm-hmm. but it also is its own ideology. That's the means are supposed to be the ends. You know, you're you're building the revolution as as you go, and so you have this free fair movement in in Brazil. Let's stick with them for a second. So by 2013, you've got Dilma Rousseff in in power. You were kind of in the jungle right. when this breaks out, and then you you come back to São Paulo, a very tiny group of people is launching a campaign against a 20 cent increase in bus fare.
2: I mean, I think you're right that the, there's not an ideology necessarily to this set of tactics and, and philosophies, but this group does have an ideology. They're, they're, they're explicitly and fully committed to horizontalism as an organizing principle. And they do what they've basically been doing since 2005, which is that every time the government is going to raise the price of uh, transportation, they organize protests hoping that this will cause enough of a mess for the government that the government will be forced to back down. And this did happen. This had worked a couple of times previously in Brazil. They had learned from other ways that sparking a mass revolt in Brazil, getting more people to join in and, and, you know, in a apparently horizontal, leaderless and structuralist way, had forced the government to back down. So I come back to my place in downtown Sao Paulo in June 2013, and I attend what I think is the fourth of the protests that they've organized in that month, with the uh, attempt to do exactly that. But things change and take a quite strange direction, um, not only for the group, but for the media and the government. Because after the first three protests that they have staged, inviting punks and anybody who else they can to shut down streets, uh, and then which end in fights with cops, by the day of the fourth protest, which is on June 13th, 2013, the media, you know, respectable mainstream, you know, somehow slightly center left, but also center right media, are, have had enough of this. They call upon the military police uh, and Brazil's police, our military police, which is the legacy of the U.S.-backed dictatorship. They call on these cops to crack down on this movement. We've had enough of this. But what happens on June 13th, 2013, and you see this happen across the mass decade, is that the cops do their job so well, they do specifically what they're trained to do, that it shocks society. The crackdown that is asked for by the Brazilian ruling class and by major mainstream media hits people like me. It hits journalists. It hits regular middle class white Brazilians that are seen as not the type of people that are supposed to be repressed in Brazil. And this shocks the very media that had called for the protest earlier that day. And over the next few days, you get in a real shift in coverage of what is supposed to be happening, what is happening on the streets. And this tiny little group of 30 dedicated left anarchists who have been you know, organizing and meeting and planning for months on, on how to do this find themselves sort of at the front of a movement which consists of millions of people pouring into the street. It's sort of all for their own reasons, all based on what they understand the movement to be, based on what the media has told them that it is. And now this is a group that doesn't want to be at the front of anything. They don't believe in leadership. They don't believe in rising to the occasion and sort of negotiating on behalf of the masses. That's not what they think. They think that you cause a, 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 a popular revolt and then that is going to get you what you want. It doesn't go that way. And I spent, you know, years doing interviews for the book, and most of the interviews that I did were with members of this group and also with members of the Brazilian Workers' Party who were on the other side of this strange (laughs) conflagration that they both found themselves in. And yeah, they admitted to me, well, they didn't admit. They have spent many years thinking about this and realizing, well, causing a huge popular revolt didn't actually work out the way that we hoped it would. It, 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 It turns out that when millions of people pour into the streets, that doesn't necessarily... Uh, end well for the causes that you believe in.
1: And I just recently interviewed uh, Naomi Klein about her book, right. uh, her new book, Doppelganger. And she writes about the right-wing mirror world and the right-wing kind of shadow lands that have risen up in contradiction, but also in some ways in in a curious relationship with the left. And as I was reading your book, I, I was seeing that unfold actually in Brazil, because then you have a right-wing organization. Right that pretends to be leaderless, takes almost the same acronym, right? but actually does have leaders, pretends just like this group to be apolitical and a party, but is very partisan and has clear aims. And spoiler, like we wind up with Bolsonaro. And those guys
2: in power, yeah, in office in, uh, with him.
1: yeah. Let's leave that hanging for now and, and jump over to the Arab Spring, right? where you had very similar dynamics. And in Turkey, uh, as you reported, there was even a call and response between the protesters in Turkey and the protesters in, in Brazil, you know, all supporting each other. So Arab Spring kicks off. Does it take on the same kind of leaderless, autonomous approach that you saw elsewhere?
2: Yes. And I would say that the distinction is that in the uprisings in North Africa and uh, uh, the Arab world, the movements tend to be horizontal rather than horizontal-ist. And this is a sort of slightly annoyingly theoretical distinction. But often what you got in places like Egypt was de facto horizontality, not because the main actors or a huge amount of people in the streets believed ideologically in the rejection of hierarchy and leadership, like the Free Fair Movement did in Brazil, but that civil society had been so crushed by decades of dictatorship, there was just, just only inchoate and half-formed organizations. Um, the organization which was strongest and most real in Egypt, for example, was probably the Muslim Brotherhood, but that was not who we in the international press chose to believe was really at the front of what was going on in in the square. We looked to a lot of, uh, in Tahrir Square, we looked to a lot of elements which were de facto horizontal and and told ourselves that that was a good thing by necessity because it meant that, of course, they would be pushing history in the right direction. Now, Tunisia is an interesting one because Tunisia, the first revolution which really inspires Egypt and the rest of them there are tightly organized and disciplined organizations which play a big role in actually getting getting that movement over the line and getting getting the protests from the distant city of Sidi Bouzid to the capital of Tunis a marxist leninist party that had long celebrated Enver Hoxha's Albania was was important in the very beginning a very large union with radicals in the middle, in the mid levels of the, of the uh, organization were really important in getting things over the line. Civil society organizations were important in getting things over the line. But in a case like Egypt, you did see horizontality rather than horizontalism. And I think that did really end up um, having a lot to do with the final result.
1: And you see over and over in, in every case that you write about organization kind of defeating non-organization. And so, after a remarkably, uh, the street protests lead to Mubarak being overthrown, with the army basically stepping in and pushing him aside, with millions of people mm-hmm. in the street. The only actual organized force at that point is the Muslim Brotherhood and brother. the army but, itself, and yeah. the army itself, of course, which will become relevant in a moment. <laughs> right, right. So, in the coming elections, the left is split between two different candidates, both of se- both of whom seem, you know, like pretty good options. And because they're split, Muslim Brotherhood uh, makes it into the runoff with basically an army, you know, establishment-backed candidate, uh, with the left splitting something like forty or fifty percent, maybe forty percent of the vote. Yeah. Uh, and so they have nobody. The streets outside of the Muslim Brotherhood have nobody in the runoff. People rally behind the Muslim Brotherhood, mm-hmm. but things quickly go south. And again, you see the sh- the mirror world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Uh, you see the military adopting the precise same characteristics and same tactics. So talk a little bit about how the new protest movement surges against the Muslim brotherhood.
2: Yeah, no, so this is one, yeah, this is, I think, I think that's quite um, interesting reading of it, especially in, in relationship to, to Naomi Klein's new book, because these you do get in both uh, Egypt in, at this moment that you're discussing. And then in Brazil, two years later, the kind of like trick mirror uh, appropriation of the original revolutionary energies and what everybody believes to be popular, grassroots, um, youth-led digital revolution to <laughs> carry out precisely the opposite of what the original organizers were were aiming for. So what you do is after you get Morsi elected, as you say, the two, quote unquote, progressive two, you know, the two candidates that could have been said to represent the uh, dreams of the secular and progressive revolutionaries They get more votes than they would have. If combined, they would have gotten enough votes to get into the second round, but they weren't combined. They had, you know, they weren't organized enough to sort of plan this kind of stuff. This was their first. This was the first probably legitimate election in trips in history that's thrown together very quickly. So Morsi's in power and you get a new group called Tamarod or Rebellion. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Arabic, which is collecting signatures to call for the resignation of Morsi. Now, again... This is presented to people, and many people believe that it is a grassroots, youth-led revolutionary response to a bad government. A lot of people sign this petition. And many authentic revolutionaries are involved.
1: Yes. Like genuinely and earnestly.
2: Yep. Some of the people that are at the front of it were involved in 2011, and then a lot of the people that were on the streets and risked their lives and fought to overthrow Mubarak... Get involved in what is the a new protest movement, which is which starts to arise in uh, June 2013, like coincidentally the same month as the events in, in Brazil. But then these protests, rather than facing down with the police, rather than ending in bouts of raucous contention with existing elites, they're supported by the elites. They take place, and it's more like a parade. It's more like a big nationalist ritual. It's more like everybody's supporting this, <laughs> except for the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, President Morsi himself, after this demonstration, which ends up being larger than the ones in 2011, immediately there's just a military coup. There's a military coup, Sisi takes over. It turns out that a lot of this had been organized behind the scenes, and it turns out that Gulf monarchies had been funding this Tamarod rebellion petition drive with the goal of installing a regime in Egypt that would be amenable to Saudi-led hegemony in the Arab world, and and this is exactly what happens, and this is basically where we are still in Egypt. 10 years later, the Sisi coup takes place, cracks down in a much more, I don't wanna say confident, because it seems like Sisi never really understands exactly what the revolution was or how to maintain his grip on power, but he, he is unabashed and unashamed about simply cracking down and crushing any revolutionary contention. There is a horrifying massacre of supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, which happens right after he takes power, And then, you know, it's like, no, no more of that. I've seized power. I'm going to be a worse dictator than the last person. And I'm just not going to put up with any any opposition to this this regime. And as you said, there was this clever trick. There was this mirror world version of 2011, because I mean, I think uh, hopefully some young people pick up this book, but it's hard to remember now, even though I remember it, but it's probably hard to imagine for young people. That back in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, the idea was that anything that the internet caused to happen was necessarily a good thing. <laughs> like anything, anything that was digitally organized, <laughs> anything that was yes. based on a viral yeah. post was going to be pushing history towards its you know, final glorious conclusion. And so, yeah, th- th- there was this pose. Well, yeah, we're doing um, grassroots digital organizing against this new bad, you know, because of course, Morsi was making all kinds of mistakes. He was in many ways, um, there was all kinds of things to be upset with Morsi about, but it, it was not what it appeared to be. Mm-hmm.
1: And you also, I think, very usefully bring Libya into the question and help me to understand how tyrants and presidents started to understand how they needed to respond to protest movements and, and how they needed to think about protest movements. Yeah. All of them being influenced by Vladimir Putin, who would, right. it seems like he was calling all of them every time that there was right. a protest, <laughs> right, right. he would call them and say, look, this is the U.S. The U.S. is doing this to you. This is orchestrated they're going to throw you out. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, And sometimes he was correct. And so so in Libya, you have kind of a sectarian uprising that, you know, rolls off of the, the Arab spring that, as you point out in the book, Gaddafi would have been easily able to kind of suppress as he had for decades. He had just recently given up his kind of weapons of mass destruction and kind of normalized, started to normalize relationship uh, with the West, uh, which, you know, side note is another lesson that people learned, which is don't give up weapons of mass destruction because then within a year you're dying. So instead of what would have happened, which is just these protests get, you know, this uprising, the sectarian uprising gets suppressed. Right. The French come in, NATO comes in, the U.S. comes in, launches a no-fly zone. Which
2: means lots of flying. Yeah. It turns
1: out it means lots, as you point out, means lots of flying and lots of bombing. Yeah, yeah. How does Libya then influence how future and current leaders at the time, think about protest movements?
2: Libya is a big lesson, both for the original revolutionaries uh, in the so-called Arab Spring, and for lots of other leaders around the world, especially Vladimir Putin. Because what happens, and I mean, we should be very clear that lots of people in Libya had good reasons to be upset with Gaddafi. There were uh, legitimate sources for the protests that began against him, but what essentially you get is a NATO regime change operation. What you get is NATO bombing the country until Qaddafi is overthrown, horrifyingly murdered on the internet for for everyone to see,
1: sodomized with a knife or a bayonet or something like, with the video uploaded to everyone.
2: This is one of the moments when we started to see what the internet could really be, or maybe truly really is. At least if it's dominated by the particular tech companies that now dominate it. Um, you know Hillary Clinton saying, uh, laughing and saying, you know, uh, we came, we saw. He died. For those in the progressive or revolutionary movements that had powered the years of 2010 and 2011, this is a lesson that's like, okay, well, larger and more powerful forces will take advantage of these uprisings in ways that suit their interests. Uh, This was also especially true in Bahrain when Saudi Arabia and the rest of the GCC simply invaded to crush a, a movement that had very real reasons to be upset. With their government, but people like Putin say, "Oh, okay. The U.S. is not accepting the post-Cold War global order that we believed that we could exist within." I'm not a, a Moscow expert, but reporting behind the scenes indicates that it was the NATO regime change operation in Libya that led Vladimir Putin to decide to come back to the presidency. Uh, he was doing this the switch off back and forth with Medvedev at the time. And other leaders around the world, other authoritarians, would-be authoritarians, perhaps in Syria, come to the conclusion that, you know, just don't put up with protests. Like, you have to either crush them, or I'm going to end up sodomized on YouTube for the whole world to see. And this is a horrifying lesson for both those who believed in the uh, apparently spontaneous mass uprising, and for those living under all of the other leaders around the world that were learning their own lessons from it. At the same time, you
1: then have Turkey seize the Gezi Park uprising, mass protests, as you could call it. And it follows a similar trajectory. Small, kind of an obscure, kind of not in my backyard issue. Kicks the thing off. I think they were gonna like chop
2: down some trees in the park. It was a very small park, which was never that beloved by the people of Istanbul. But there was a small group of environmentalist activists that were trying to defend this park, yeah.
1: So they stood in front of the bulldozers. Then a bunch of people fell
2: down the steps, getting kind of pushed. Yeah, there's a police crackdown, which which shocks the country, at least the the, the part of the country that is watching this unfold on social media. And you get an explosion of of sympathy, especially from the middle class and more secular uh, elements of uh, Istanbul society.
1: And so then Erdogan eventually capitulates and says, all right, let's talk. What are your demands? Let's negotiate here. And you have uh, kind of old lefty folks that you call the big brothers of the movement who say, look, this is this is our moment. Like you have to negotiate while you're still in the streets. Mm -hmm. If you agree to negotiate and everybody goes home, then they're just going to walk away from you. Mm -hmm. We have to seize this opportunity. The younger people in the park say, who do you think you are? Right. You don't represent us. You don't represent us. That's the slogan of the decade. Yeah. And so basically nobody goes. Talk about how Gezi Park kind of unfolds from there.
2: Yeah, so then of course, so then, ends up Erdogan chooses his own set of representatives.
1: And they were too fake, right? And then he picked a new
2: bunch. Right, there was some, there was actors, then he picked a new bunch. But this was a fundamental problem because, I mean, in many, many of these uh, mass participants or uprisings, it had not been planned at all that this was really going to happen. I mean, they, ha- they hoped at best to maybe stop this park from being destroyed or to make their point that they wanted to keep some public spaces in, in central Istanbul. But now, and this is, I think, a real theme of the book, is you get... Perhaps not in Turkey, because I don't think they were in a position to overthrow Erdogan. But what you have is a protest which causes a situation which offers much more opportunities than a protest can really take advantage of. When you generate these huge uprisings, you sometimes generate revolutionary situations But a protest, at least a particular type, the particular type of protest that became hegemonic in the 2010s, has a very hard time taking advantage of a revolutionary situation. Either it needs to turn to the government and say, OK, you're in trouble. We know that you're against the wall. Give us A, B, C and D and we'll go home. You know, maybe you ask for E also thinking you can't get it, but that's a future goal. That's a big thing you want down the road. But if the government gives you A, B and C, then you have a win. You go home. And then you can build back better for, uh, you know, keep the movement together to fight another day. Or if maybe you really are at the point of overthrowing the government, then you need to pick somebody to go in and be the new government. And when you have essentially hundreds of thousands of millions of people in the streets, all for their own reasons, which might even vary from morning to night, from one day to the next, it's very difficult to either choose what to negotiate over or to take over the, the, the government when the guy in power flees. And so what's going on with unions right now in the US is a good example of how this actually works, because when a union says we're going on strike, but we'll go back to work if ABC, that has to be a credible promise, right? And millions of people in the streets can't credibly promise to Erdogan, we'll go home and be happy if we get ABC. Because, you know, maybe the big brothers did get to go sit down with Erdogan, and maybe they do extract some great things that are really going to be good for progressive, secular elements in Istanbul, in in Turkey, but they have no, there's no way that they can promise to Erdogan that they're going to go back to the square and anybody's going to go home. All of the kids just might say, screw you, we're going to stay here until and then come up with their own E, F, G and H. And this is a dynamic which you can understand why it wasn't planned for. You can understand why this particular set of opportunities was not one that the protest organizers did, did not prepare for. But because they didn't expect that many people to join. They didn't expect the crackdown that was going to go viral and, and send millions of people onto the streets. But the inability to deal with that unique and time-limited opportunity, I think, is a source of great tragedy in what I call the, the mass protest decade. And so Erdogan just gets fed up. Clears it.
1: Sends his goons and just clears the park. He's like, fine, fine, go home, get
2: out. And then what? What are you going to do? You're going to try to organize another apparently spontaneous outpouring of people to do the exact same thing. This is a problem that they had in in Egypt. You know, every time that the government led by the military in the, in the period between 2011 and the election of Morsi, every time the government did something that was a reason to be quite upset, they're like, the only arrow in their quiver was like, well, let's try to do another Tahrir Square. Let's try to redo what happened in in january 2011 and it's just very difficult to reproduce those conditions you have to take advantage of them or you have to have structures that can act in a permanent way upon the state or whatever other elites that you're trying to uh, influence or overthrow
0: Or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
3: After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. With Mint Mobile, you get great wireless service at a fraction of the cost of other providers. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plan's jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/deconstructed. That's mintmobile.com/deconstructed. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/deconstructed. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for details.
1: So let's talk about the uprising in Ukraine for a bit. And can you set up for people who don't remember? Like, how did we get uh, to Maidan?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to to establish right off the bat for people outside of the post-Soviet world is that after the fall of the USSR in 1989, Ukrainians got a horrible deal. I mean, Ukraine experienced what is it, 15 years or so of horrible political leadership, absolutely uh, atrocious economic decline. Regular Ukrainians had every reason to be upset with not just the particular government uh, that was in power in 2013, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was in the executive at the time, but just in general with the state of post-Soviet affairs. Things were very, very bad. But what ends up acting as the spark for the Euromaidan? uprising is an association agreement with the european union and this makes a lot more sense when put in the context of all of the other uh, events in the book but that's not really really what it is what it is is the crackdown on the protesters that leads to an outpouring of support in the center of the capital of ukraine so you have an explosive combination of a lot of people who rightfully believe that their system has been sort of a joke for a long time, but also half of the country have have voted for this man. He won, you know, in the imperfect democracy that they had, he had won the election. And then there was the idea sort of dangled in front of at least some of the parts of Ukraine that we could maybe be more integrated into Europe. And this is something that really inspired a lot of people, but not everybody, because a lot of people believe this deal was not good. I mean, notably, I think only 37%, 37%, no, uh, 39%, I'm sorry, of Ukrainians in November 2013 actually really cared about, wanted this association agreement with the EU. But when there's the crackdown on the initial protests, there is uh, widening support for whatever it is that's happening in, in the capital. And then that question of whatever, what what is happening in the, in the capital, I think changes from week to week until you get into 2014. And then you have this moment where the trick mirror world presents itself in
1: real time, whereas in Brazil and Egypt, there was at least some kind of temporal gap. You've got the uprising and then the kind of reverse mirror version of the uprising later. In the Maidan, you tell this amazing story about a group of kind of socialists and lefties who decide that they are going to put aside some of their earlier reservations about this, and they're going to participate in this. And they're going to form kind of a, what they called it, a hundreds, which is sort of like a self-defense group. Right. And so they show up and it's the right sector. Yep. You can argue whether or not all of them are neo-Nazis or just like white supremacists or like, but these are like radical violent right. Right. And calling themselves right sector goes both because they're on the right part mm-hmm. of the square, but also that they are as far right as you can imagine. Like, And so they show up and they ask this guy all right, we want to register our group. And he tells them, come back two days later, come back unarmed. And so take it from there.
2: Yeah. And then they, they get threatened violently and said, there's no leftists, you know, there's not going to be any of you leftists, gay, anarchist, Antifa, uh, losers, you know, you know, trash in our militant self-defense groups. They are presented with the opportunity of being beaten up by C-14, which is a I think it's safe to call, say, a neo-Nazi group. You, you said a Bellingcat story saying it's okay to call them neo nazis yeah. C-14 stands for
1: the 14 racist words, whatever they are. Like, I, I live for the defense of the white race.
2: But- right. And so they are presented with either running away from C-14 or getting beaten up by them when they had been at least officially trying to join the self-defense groups in Maidan. And so, I mean, from the very beginning... The official left, like the capital L, old school left, the KPU, the Ukrainian Communist Party was against Maidan. The uprising was was largely the more nationalist and more liberal elements of the country. Like, you know, Ukraine by 2013 had a polarization, which would be very familiar to people in the United States. It was one half of the country that tended to be in the square the big institutional capital L left was against Maidan but there were some elements like like the people that I spoke to this the story that you're you're mentioning on the anarchist left the anti-authoritarian left the more sort of feminist left people that lived in the capital and thought okay let's get involved maybe we don't agree with everything that's happening maybe this is a right-leaning movement maybe this is a movement for uh, the adoption of a neoliberal trade agreement which we don't even actually love but we should get involved and try to make this as sort of anti-racist and progressive as possible And they are violently expelled. Which, to go back to your theoretical underpinning, is,
1: again, organization beating out lack of organization. Right. You describe the right sector and the C-14 as like neo-Leninist. You know, they would have hated Lenin himself. Right. But they formed a kind of Leninist vanguard. And they fought
2: for power. They took it. These groups, the radical nationalist groups that either assembled on Maidan or organized within Maidan were absolutely not horizontally organized post ideological everything goes. We're all in it for whatever we want to be in it for. These were tightly organized groups that had been planning for quite a long time. um, That violence was necessary that Ukraine needed to be a more pure nation. They had been hoping for the moment to be properly revolutionary, but in the far right sense. And this is something that comes up across the the decade. It is the groups that are already organized, disciplined, ideologically coherent and prepared before the explosion comes that tend to win out. So, you know, Russia and Vladimir Putin, in ways which are end up being quite catastrophic, exaggerate the importance of the far right uh, in Maidan in 2013. But they are there. And this sort of looking at the entire decade, as I do in this book, uh, helps to understand what really happens, which is that there's a very small group of people, not popular with Ukrainians, that punch above their weight because they are so tightly disciplined and organized before the ruckus comes, before history with a capital H comes knocking uh, and offers op- offers opportunity for the, the exact type of violence that they've been uh, waiting for. So
1: while the unorganized left is punching way below its weight, the organized right punching way above its weight, the guy who orchestrated that threatened beatdown of the left becomes what the head of security then in the in the government when when they take over. Yep. You write about how when Zelensky then runs for office, he points to Bolsonaro as a model for, you know, how he intends uh, to govern. So let's go back to Brazil. So you have this Free Fair movement which starts to fizzle yet takes a huge chunk out of Dilma Rousseff. You write that she never really recovered from the protests, from months of protests or weeks of protests in the streets, even though none of the demands and none of the complaints actually had anything to do
2: with the federal government. Yeah, it, this is—I mean, this is a, this is like a real mystery. These I mean this these experiences really formative for not only me as like a journalist covering Brazil at the time, but I think almost everybody that lived through it. Like, there was just this huge explosion of the type that had been planned for very precisely and hoped for by the anti-authoritarian left for essentially a decade. But what it ends up doing is just allowing for the right to enter the streets. And then Dilma, who is a leader that the Free fair movement did not love, they didn't want her out of power. They preferred her to the all of the other existing options in the Brazilian political system. They ended up voting for her in 2014. She loses 30 percentage points in a matter of weeks. Now, this is a real puzzle because, like, as you say, with her actual governance, precisely nothing happened. The bus fare rise was coordinated by the mayor of Sao Paulo at the time. She actually tried to delay it. The police crackdown. Uh, Police in Brazil are governed at the state level. So it was a, a, a right of center politician in Sao Paulo that would have been responsible for that crackdown. Dilma herself, the executive, didn't do anything. She tried. I mean, and this was, I thought, like a quite interesting detail I got behind, behind the scene. I mean, I, I interviewed her afterwards, but other things. But this was a detail that I got later in the reporting for this book, is that she would spend her days sitting in a room by herself, watching the the, the protests on TV, and she would turn off the volume because she didn't want to be influenced by what the journalists were saying was happening on the streets. She was just like carefully studying the screen, tr- the screen trying to figure out, okay, what are these people asking for? Because I want to give it to them. <laughs> but there was no answer. Like they're asking for everything. They're asking for nothing. They were asking for all kinds of things that could not be delivered upon. Because she is somebody that Came up as a dissident and really wanted public transportation to be cheaper and more accessible in Brazil. She was tortured by the military. She's no fan of the military police. She like struggles to find a way to respond to the streets. Comes up with some stuff. A lot of the most important of which is rejected by the rest of the political establishment. Three weeks later, the dust settles and she's lost thirty percent of her approval rating. Like now, why? Well, I don't know. Uh, A theory is that sort of just there was just this big explosion of neg- negative media, both social and traditional coverage of Brazil, everybody was invited into the streets to think about and talk about all the things that they didn't like and ask for something better, which is, I think, a great thing in, in general to, for for citizens of a democracy to be engaged in, you know, critique and planning for improvements. But she just turns around, so, "Well, what happened? And I think sort of to this day, she's kind of a lot of people in that government and perhaps for herself are kind of asking what happened. Yeah, and leaderlessness then
1: gets taken to almost a s- satirical proportions uh, when a guy who says that he's part of Anonymous, you know, they've faded a little bit, but at the time they were a very big deal. There's a hacker collective, hacktivist collective. He does a anonymous-looking video and says, here are the five demands. Like, n- If nobody's going to articulate demands, we're, these are the five things that we want. Some of them are obscure. Some of them are uncontroversial. None of them really... You know, hit at power structures and zero of them go to anybody's material benefit or economics mm-hmm. because they'd already won I think at that point the 20 cent increase had been rolled back
2: yeah they got the 20 cents and the the free fair movement didn't know what to do with that they didn't want to lead something new so they just kind of went away and so then you
1: you found this guy you interviewed him right and turns out you're like how, how did you guys arrive at these demands he's like there are, there are no guys it was just me yeah and found him on Facebook basically.
2: Yeah, I turned on my camera, put on a mask, and just put it on the internet. It wasn't that no one else was stepping up to supply what the demands were, everyone was stepping up to supply what the demands mm-hmm. were. And for whatever reason, this particular video, you know, maybe it hits the algorithm right, maybe he like, you know, it's short and punchy, but this one goes viral. And this is one of the th- you know, you see, you know, this is, you know, this is now is a more, I think this is now more familiar to us, you know, 10 years later. But just one guy points a camera at himself. And then within days, people are on the streets holding up the cinco causes, the five causes, or whatever. That's all it is. It's just one video that comes to stand in for perhaps what the people want. And yeah, as you said, I found him and he's like, yeah, I just made that up. I don't know. I just, I thought it was good. It
1: seemed reasonable.
2: <laughs> yeah. It seemed
1: fun. It seemed good. Then Dilma wins re-election. She ekes out a fourth term. In 2014, yeah, just barely. Yep. And instantly this copycat right-wing group starts demanding her impeachment. Right. When did they formulate a crime? Like, was that after the demand for the impeachment?
2: No, no, no. They were they were ready to impeach before she even took office.
1: But I mean, the specific crime, like they eventually impeached her over this like bookkeeping issue that does not even appear to be a crime.
2: Right. Did they come up with that right. way down the road? They picked that one. That w- That was one that was accepted by a very notorious and very establishment politician in Congress. Who himself was on his way to jail, it looks like. Well, he was he was trying to make a deal. That's why he said, he said, I'm going to impeach you unless you save my hide. And Dilma said, no, a lot of other Brazilian presidents probably would have made that deal. And then he started impeachment. Lots of groups had presented possible ways to impeach. And he grabbed this one. It seemed to have, have just enough of a thin legal basis to make it work. And then the protest movement, which, as you say, was born in the streets in June 2013, while the Movimento Passi Livre, the MPL, was becoming very popular and being seen as sort of the heroic young kids in front of the June 2013 movement, because that's what they were. I mean, heroic is is a value judgment, but they were the, the organizers. These free market libertarian right wing kids who had often either been funded by US libertarian groups or worked with the Koch brothers in the United States, they found the Movimento Brasil Livre, which is MBL. So MBL, MPL. To this day, like during the time that I worked on this book, I would say, oh yeah, I'm doing a lot of interviews with the MPL. And then people would just hear MBL because that's now the group that became so much more famous. They succeeded at stealing the thunder of the original group of leftists and anarchists that always you know, rejected leadership and participation in the political establishment. So in Dilma, Dilma, in Dilma Rousseff's second term, this group becomes one of the leading movements to organize protests for impeachment, again, putting themselves forward as, oh, you know, we're young, we're digitally organized, we're a grassroots movement of the kids calling for a more free Brazil, when that the whole time they were very well supported by traditional economic elites in the US, and indeed had formed in the specific way that they did because of support from the United States.
1: And then they lock up Lula on basically trumped up charges. So they force Mm -hmm. uh, one of the main characters of your book to be the presidential candidate. He loses by 10 points to a guy who'd been on the fringes for decades and who, you write, he dedicated his vote, his impeachment vote, to the army official who tortured Dilma, which you describe as this rupture in kind of Brazilian politics and Brazilian society. We've now seen a rollback of that. Right. But the original kind of movement then ends with Bolsonaro in office and the rainforest being savaged and the MPL kind of in tatters and in tears. Right. And getting blamed a lot. You write that a lot of people kind of guess in the center left. How common was it to say, this is all those 30 anarchists' fault?
2: The claims ranged, and they ranged from the reasonable to the outlandish. You know, this is basically what Adaji says, the current minister of finance of Brazil. One of the politicians I interviewed in the book that you know, these were good kids. They they wanted the right thing, but they they unleashed a beast that they couldn't control, and it got out of and it got out of and the beast ended up devouring them. Which is sort of what many of them say. Also, not all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they to this day remain very uh, they aren't disciplined on uh, messaging. They have their own opinions. But then other other parts of the PT would say, "Oh well, these these people must have been agents of imperialism. Uh, these people must have been somehow wreckers. These people, or these people were so these people started." what became the coup. These are people responsible for the coup and the original members. Yeah. Spent years of like, just I, which is something that I encountered all across, um, the 12 countries that I visited for this book lived through years of trauma and self-doubt and sort of infighting, like, well, what did we do wrong? What, you know, on, on the, what particular, on that particular day, what if we turned left and turned of, instead of right? Like what was wrong with what we did? And so, yeah, they, they were, destroyed by this piece that they created, but also sort of they're a huge part of the politi- Brazilian political establishment trying to throw them into the, the dustbin of history.
1: And so to get to one of those uncomfortable questions, I want to quote your interview with Fernando Haddad, who was the, the presidential candidate who Lula had hoisted and then he loses. He says, uh, after 1999, the, the year of those Seattle protests, uh, we saw the rise of a certain anti-state left with a kind of neo-anarchist charm. And that kept its distance from governments and in any instantiation of political representation in general. At the end of the day, horizontalism is a reflection of individualism. And it made me wonder if how enamored I was of kind of anarchism and horizontalism at the time was actually just a mirror world version of the neoliberalism that had seeped so deeply into society at the time. Mm-hmm. Was I just so kind of marinated in that soup? Mm-hmm. That I didn't understand that I was just putting a different gloss on this like atomistic elevation of the individual over the community and over, over the organization and over kind of a person rather than people. As you look back at this over the last 15 years, what's your takeaway on that?
2: Well, I have a similar experience. I mean, well, first of all, just to point out, it, it's not a huge uh, issue, but that, that second sentence, the one that is uh, horizontalism is a reflection of individualism. I don't think Adad, uh, Fernando Haddad would disagree, but that one is actually Paolo Garbaudo, Ger- oh. uh, an Italian uh, re- uh, scholar. But, you know, I also, I had a very my similar- My bad, same paragraph. Yeah, same Poor paragraph. Reading. Well, maybe my bad because I put in the same paragraph, but but I don't think Haddad would disagree uh, right there. I mean, I think he also, I mean, he re- he'd written about, Haddad had written earlier in his career about the sort of deep psychological and subjective conditions of neoliberalism uh, himself. I mean, I had a very similar journey. I mean, I think that I like learned how to use the internet watching the Seattle protests in 1999, like reading No Logo and, Mm -hmm. you know, hanging out on indie media were like my coming of age political events, you know, growing up in California. That's
1: the Naomi Klein book for the the young people and the very
2: old people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As uh, I think I put in the book, I found out about it because the band Radiohead uh, recommended it to me, like on their website. <laughs> and, you know, th- this moment of indie media and 1999 Seattle protests and the automatic assumption that the, the greater individual autonomy within a social movement was going to be that meant more freedom in them and that meant you were more likely to get what you wanted and you were more likely to create the society that you were hoping for. If you do get what you wanted, I tried to go on this journey sort of chronologically through the book and try to explain where it came from and why it made sense to sort of adopt those particular philosophical approaches. Why during, you know, in the United States, in the era of the Cold War, it made sense to perhaps try to find a way to do something better or different than the Soviet Union. Why it made sense to believe in the late um, 20th century, as David Graeber did, that more anarchist tactics could be more could be effective because we weren't going to be in an age of political warfare. And then just to say, well, whether or not this is philosophically, ontologically across space and time, a good or a bad approach, it proved a very poor match for the particular circumstances that arose in the mass protest decade. So some people in the book, I mean, a lot of people in the book told me that they moved away from horizontalism, if not even back towards something closer to Leninism. But some people remained in the same place. And it may be the case that this particular set of approaches, this particular sort of utopian idea of individual centrality may be the right thing for other situations. But that's why I insist on sort of not I insist. That's why I chose to write a, a history rather than just try to say this is what I think happened. Mm-hmm. Because I think in a, in watching the events unfold, you can see just how the particular repertoire of contention, the particular approach to political change that we had assumed was the best one in the 2010s turned out not to be a perfect match. Now, that is also can be quite inspiring because if there is indeed this huge amount of desire for change to the global system, which I think the mass protest decade demonstrates, then all you have to do is sort of jiggle with that match and find the right things that are the match and and find learn from the story, learn from the mistakes, learn from... The, the things that didn't quite work out and come up with a set of practices that are fit to task. And that sort of motivates the entire project. It's not about saying, well, here's what I think was wrong. It's saying, okay, well, this is how this came about. This is how it didn't work out yet. And this is what, you know, 200, 250 people, 200 interviews have pointed to as better ways to try to improve our world going forward.
1: My own accidental journalism career basically started in 2005 in, in Bolivia, covering the uprising that led Evo morales to take power and i found myself thinking of that while reading your book because and this is five years before your window but this was this is a mass demonstration hundreds of thousands of bolivians take to the street they overthrow the president and they effectively end up installing Evo morales as president he oversaw some of the you know the most rapid and sustained, you know, uh, standard of living increases mm-hmm. in the world, in Bolivia over his terms, and his one of his deputies is still in power there, even after a a coup that ousted them for a year.
2: A coup that took place after mass protests.
1: Yes, exactly. Mass protests appear to have been orchestrated in, in collusion with the National Security Council out of the out of the U.S. And so, the difference there, the reason that I think that mass and Morales and the Bolivians were able to succeed and I'm curious for take on this they were deeply organized yep they had mining unions yep they had cocolero grower unions they had leaders they were disciplined and they had goals mm-hmm. and they implemented and executed on them and so there was no vacuum for anybody to fill
2: exactly no I think I, I think I agree uh, entirely with that uh, assessment I mean early in the book I think I, I kind of cheat a little bit because I want to <laughs> but make brazil central i say that the, the brazil's workers party may have carried out the most significant social democratic project in the history of the global south and I, that only counts if you wait for population right i think <laughs> if if you count bolivia as you know on a per capita basis it may be bolivia is the real is the real winner of that of that contest it's just incredible what happened in in bolivia under morales that's precisely right is that i mean you know it's used to be axiomatic and it seems really obvious when to think about that you know okay when you have a situation that you want to take advantage of, if you are working collectively, if you're working hand in hand with your fellow human beings, you're going to be more effective. You know, you, you know, if you have a football game and everybody goes to the football game and sort of decides on their own play at the moment of the snap, you're probably not going to do as well as a team that has been practicing and, and you know, forming close bonds over over years. I think that's precisely right. I think unions are a great example and I mean I think what's going on in the United States right now is an example of sort of learning some of the ma- lessons of the mass protest decade of going back and thinking, okay, well maybe we didn't snatch the presidency from of the most powerful nation in human history. You know, that was, you know, that would have, you know, might have worked. But what we can do is we can build working class power and if you build working class power slowly and carefully, you have a set of organizations, a set of human beings working hand-in-hand hand with each other, they can take advantage of whatever comes along. It may be the case that right now, there's a moment where we can get gains for working people. It might be the case that in two years, the work, you know, a more organized working class in the United States can be uh, fundamental to achieving broader political demands. What is surprising is that we forgot that lesson in the first place. And I think sort of the, you know, wonderment at the internet and sort of digital utopianism, which was all wrapped up in a sort of techno-libertarianism, which I think has some odd overlapping points with the neo-anarchist thought, just sort of got us forgetting some basic lessons about uh, what works.
1: We talked about a lot of this book, but I can assure people there's a lot more to it, and I encourage encourage people to pick it up. But thank you for joining me, and and congrats on a terrific work.
2: Hey, thank you so much for having me and for, and for reading it so carefully. It's really... It's been years working on it. I, know, I never. I always never know if like it's actually going to make sense to anyone. So hearing you yeah. <laughs> recount it back to me has been, has been uh, quite fascinating. Yeah, thank you for that. That was Vincent Bevins. His new book is If We Burn, The Mass Protest
1: Decade and the Missing Revolution. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Leonardo Fireman transcribed this episode. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, DC bureau chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week, and please go and leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at or at ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Put deconstructed in the subject line, otherwise, we might miss your message. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.